Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Thank you for listening to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. I apologize for the inconsistent posting over the last two months. I was on vacation for 10 days, and then I had two business trips. And then when I came back, you had all the stuff that normally has to get taken care of to fit in. And the podcast, the recording and publishing of the podcast got put on the back burner a little bit. So I apologize for that. Uh, Thank you for all you who have continued to listen. I have really enjoyed doing this. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. I greatly enjoy being able to share these truths with you. And my goal, my hope, is that you would benefit from some extended discussions on truths from the Word of God. Now, a couple weeks ago, I had a podcast uh, entitled Thoughts on Worship Music. And in that podcast, I just laid out some things that I had been thinking about, things that I, again, were takeaways maybe some more advanced takeaways from the Sing 2019 conference. And I realized that, you know what, I've never really kind of laid out or given you a theological foundation for what worship is according to the scriptures. And I think that's a really important and critical thing that we do. See, worship is one of those words that has been allowed to be defined however you want to define it. Worship is one of those words where you can say worship and it just makes people like cringe on the inside. Sometimes it makes their stomach ball up. Sometimes it, um, it's like fighting words almost. Worship is something that's very near and dear to people because it's a personal experience. And one thing I've learned in my time in the ministry is that you can't argue with personal experience. If someone says, when I do this, I'm worshiping. It's hard to say, well, the Bible says that's not really worship. I should say this. It's not hard for me to say that, but it seems very insensitive and callous. And it requires a lot of tact to bring a person around to the point where they say, oh yeah, you know, I thought this was worship or I thought this was the right way to approach God, but maybe it's not. So what I want to try to do today is just lay out a theological groundwork, a theological foundation, if you will, for what is worship. What is worship? Now, let me say this, and I think I've said this in previous episodes. I can't remember, but it bears repeating. Every single person in the world is a worshiper. Whether you are an atheist, an agnostic, a Buddhist, a Hindu, or anything. It doesn't matter what you are. You are a worshiper. There are literally millions of people who go to church throughout the United States, throughout the Western world, throughout the entire world, who are worshipers of something that may not be Jesus. Yeah, that's true. You can go to a church and be a worshiper of someone or something that is not Jesus. And that doesn't even take into account all the false religions that I just mentioned and all the people who claim to have no religion. Well, how do we know that everybody is a worshiper? 
That's a really good question, right? How do we know that everybody is a worshiper? Well, I would invite you to look with me at Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. All right, now Paul is talking to the church in Rome, and he is about to begin his theological treatise on why all men are lost. Okay, why are all men sinners? Why are they lost? And why do they deserve condemnation? Okay, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, I don't know what passages you've spent a lot of time studying in your Bible, but this passage in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, should be one that you spend a great deal of time studying because it explains so much of why people act the way that they do. It explains why God is just in condemning sinners to an eternity without him in the lake of fire. Why is God just? Because men in their ungodliness and unrighteousness have suppressed the truth because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. What does this mean? What this means is that God, when he created man in his image, intrinsically programmed man to know truth. Man is intrinsically programmed to know truth. And what truth in particular should man know? Truth about God. You know, I love the Psalms, especially Psalm 19, because it talks about how the heavens and the stars declare the glory and the grandeur and the majesty of God. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge, yet no word is spoken. No word is spoken. What's the implication of that? That every human being should be able to walk outside and look up at the stars and say, man, this is big. There must be an incredible God who made this. I need to know that God. So you feel small because creation is so huge. You feel small because creation dwarfs our fragile existence. And in addition to that feeling of smallness that you get when you observe creation, you have an intrinsic knowledge, a knowledge that was placed there by God when he created us in his image, a knowledge that um, is difficult to deny, but it can be denied. That's what we're about to find out. A knowledge that um, would lead us, if we were open-minded, to know Yahweh, the true God, and Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Paul continues, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood 
through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul says the exact same thing as Psalm 19, that the creation displays God's power and invisible attributes. The creation is clearly seen by every person. The creation is clearly understood so that every person is without excuse. Now, we haven't gotten exactly to the part yet where we find out that all men are worshipers, but we have certainly found out that all men know who they should worship, and it is the one unique holy God, the living God. Verse 21, for they, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So they knew God, but they did not want to honor him as God or give thanks. So professing to become, be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Huh. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And there you have it. Paul says, every single person, everyone, without excuse, without fail, without exception, has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for some other image whether it's in the form of corruptible man, like Zeus, or Diana, or Hermes, or Poseidon, or any of the other Greek gods, or birds, or four-footed animals, or even crawling creatures like insects and snakes and bugs. All people have exchanged the truth about the true God for some other image in the form of a created being. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and they serve the creature rather than the creator. Now, you may say, well, you know, in America, we don't worship. We don't worship people. I don't have a little statue of a person in my house that I worship. Oh, yeah? What people do you look up to in society? Who are the influencers in society? You know, the Taylor Swifts, the Brad Pitts, the Tom Brady's. You know, if you want to go to political figures, you could look at the Barack Obamas. People worship famous people in America. You don't need to have a little statue because you have a handheld device or a computer where you can look at the person that you choose to worship all the time. You can read all about them. You can be influenced by them. You can pay your homage to them by pressing the like button, the love button. Don't tell me 
that we don't worship people in America. We worship ideal beauty. We worship the idea of tolerance and acceptance. And we elevate those people who are the smallest minority so that they have the greatest voice and influence over others. We worship and we serve the creature rather than the creator. Why is that true? Because America, in general, as a culture, has abandoned the absolute standards of the Word of God in order to tolerate and uplift and um, fall in love with and promote the ideas of fallen man. All right, we are all worshipers. It doesn't matter if you say, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I'm anything else. Whatever is at the center of your thoughts, whatever ideas constitute those ideas that motivate you and challenge you to do better, to be more this or more that, those are what becomes your God. And so we all have gods. And even Christians who have the God Jesus continually struggle with idols and idol worship and lust. Not lust in terms of just uh, sexual lust, but a lusting after other things that would satisfy us instead of Christ. That's all worship. We are worship factories. I mean, we just have worship going on and on and on and on in our hearts. And, you know, if you have children, you can see this as they become, you know, between that like two and five-year-old range, they start developing interests and you can see their obsession with their interests. They just love whatever it is they're interested in. My four-year-old son can name off like 15 construction vehicles. We talk to him about the Ten Commandments, help him try to understand what God's law is. He can't remember that. Why? The natural man does not understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. My son has no interest in God's truth because he's not God's. His heart is a worship factory and he likes construction vehicles. It's what he worships. Now we think it's cute, funny, endearing, whatever. And if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It may be like Disney princesses or it could be horses or it could be Whatever, there's a thousand things that kids love. And it's all cute and funny and endearing for a while. But what is that heart being trained to do? It's being trained to worship. It is being trained to respond to whatever the God says should be done. These are deep things to think about. And that's why this is a discussion on theological worship. God is the one who is the author of worship. God is the one who has given the foundations of worship. God is the one who has designed man to worship. So if you don't understand God's design, if you don't understand God's foundation, then when you start talking about worship, you're building off the foundation if you don't understand the foundation. We have to be able to root our practices. We have to be able to root our choices in a theology. 
once you walk away from a theology, a understanding of God, his character, and how he has revealed himself to us and what he expects us to do, once you walk away from that, it's a free-for-all. It's anything goes. It's whatever is good for you is good for me. So we're trying to establish an objective standard of what worship is from the Word of God. Everybody is a worshiper. Everyone is a worshiper. Doesn't matter if you think you are or if you don't think you are, you are a worshiper. You're fooling yourself. You're deceiving yourself if you think that you're not a worshiper. And if you're a believer and you think that you don't have any worship of other things, I would say you're probably deceiving yourself as well because it's a constant battle to be renewing your heart, renewing your mind, to be transformed by the power of the Word of God so that you keep the right things in the right place. Now, the best story in the entire New Testament to talk about the difference between man's concept of worship and God's concept of worship is found in John chapter 4, when Jesus has a very interesting discussion with a Samaritan woman. So I want to read a little bit of this to you. John chapter 4. Now, some of you might be familiar with this passage. It's always good to go back and reread things. Jesus was traveling through uh, Samaria, which is not what Jews were normally supposed to do. Jews did not like Samaritans. They normally went out of their way to not have to go through Samaria. But Jesus, being, of course, unconventional and not prone to do the things that Jews did just because that's what the Jews did, decided to go through Samaria. So they're going through Samaria and they come to a town. And the disciples go into town to find something to eat. And Jesus goes out and sits by the well. And out there, while he's sitting there, comes a woman. And Jesus begins a conversation with her. And he starts by talking and saying to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman is shocked by this. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? So it's one thing for Jews to talk to Samaritans. It's entirely different. It's entirely unconventional. Very improper, like breaking all the rules for a Jew to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. John even notes this in the text of the gospel when he says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Not like a few dealings, but no dealings. Like this was not normal. Jesus answered and said to her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Well, that's pretty impressive that the well was one of the wells that Jacob had done or dug nearly 1,500 years earlier. That's a pretty impressive heritage in that area. Well, Jesus 
he was so masterful at getting from the physical to the spiritual, says this in response. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So there's Jesus moving from the physical, this water from this well, to the eternal, water that can be given to you from Jesus. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. She didn't understand. Didn't understand all the way. And Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman says, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. All right, so Jesus tells this woman something about her past that he would only be able to know by divine revelation. The Holy Spirit of God revealed this to Jesus while he was at this particular spot talking to this particular woman. There is no way for him to have known this without the Holy Spirit's divine revelation to him. And so the woman then says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, like in America, we would say, no, duh, right? Duh, of course he's a prophet. He told you all about your history and you just met the guy. Now, now the conversation gets real interesting. All right. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What's the first thing that she asks after she realizes that she's talking to a man of God? Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Hmm. She is focused on what? External practices. External locations. She's focused on traditions. She's focused on your people versus my people. She's focused on all types of things that distract us from real worship. And Jesus perceives this, and he says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Why? Because the worship of God is not contained to one location, right? The worship of God can happen anywhere. Now, it wasn't quite yet that that was about to take place, but when Jesus died on the cross and the great curtain that was four inches thick that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple and consequently from the rest of the world— when that was torn in two, the access to God was totally transformed. Instead of having to be a high priest of the right family, of the right nation, a Jew, for example, and only being able to go into the Holy of Holies once per year, the access to God became available to everyone at any particular time because now Jesus was the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus was the mediator between God and man. Jesus was the one who would grant you an audience in the courtroom of the Father. And so that's why Jesus says, an hour is coming. It's not here yet, 
but it's coming when you will neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Then he goes on to tell her this, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What in the world does Jesus mean by this statement? I think there are a lot of interpretations as to what Jesus means by this statement, but what does he really, literally mean by saying, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth? I know from my own experience um, talking with different Christians from different parts of the Christian community that some Christians emphasize the spirit aspect of this, that worship is an entirely emotional experience, that worship is something that should touch your heart and move your soul, and to borrow a phrase from the modern-day culture, worship should make you feel alive, okay? Well, there's another community of Christians who say, no, no, worship, listen, that experiential stuff, that experiential stuff, that can just be misleading, You can't trust your emotions. You can't trust your feelings. They're deceptive. And so worship must be in truth. And so we have to have a great orthodoxy. We have to have great truth in our worship. And they lean more towards the truth side of the equation. They emphasize strong lyrics and rich, deep theological song choices. They emphasize the preaching from the Word of God. Perhaps This comes through in more of a high liturgy, as in a Lutheran or a Presbyterian tradition. But I think a lot of churches who believe in the truth aspect of this have what I would call a low liturgy. In other words, they they sing basically the same, you know, 200 to 300 songs throughout the year. They have the same order in their worship service. They have the same things that are done week after week on a Sunday morning, but it's truthful. It's truthful. It may not move you because you've done it 150 times in your life or more, but it's truthful. What does Jesus mean then when he's saying God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth? Well, if you look at the text of Scripture, the spirit in God's perspective is the entire inward part of man. It is both the heart and the mind. It is all that you think and all that you feel. We are spirit. We are spirit beings. We have a spirit. That is what separates us from the animal kingdom. So when God created Adam and breathed into him the ruach, that is the Hebrew word for spirit, the breath of life, That is something that he gave to Adam that was different and unique from all the members of the animal kingdom. So we have this. We have this spirit within us. And we must worship with our spirit engaged. 
Let me take you to another place in the Gospels to try to help you understand what Jesus is talking about. Let's go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. And Jesus is having a, a debate, a conversation, a discussion, however you want to call it, with the Pharisees. Not uncommon for him. And his, the Pharisees are basically questioning Jesus in this particular passage, Matthew 15, beginning in verse 1. And they're saying, well, Jesus, how come your disciples do not obey the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands in the proper way before they eat bread. And Jesus says to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, you're not honoring your father and mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The Pharisees thought that by keeping these external commandments, by keeping these external traditions, they were honoring God. They were doing something that was good and righteous and holy and just. They were, they were doing their great service for God. They were building themselves up in God's eyes. But Jesus challenges them and says, no, not quite. The reality is, you guys are ignoring the law to obey your traditions, to obey man-made rules rather than God's rules. You see, for them, the big issue that they had with the disciples was, well, your hands aren't properly clean. And if you don't clean your hands in the proper way, then you're going to be defiled. In other words, you're going to be unclean before God. You're going to have sinned, and you don't want to sin because that separates you from God. So, Jesus called the crowd and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. All right, he said that to the crowd at large. Now the disciples came to him privately and said, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard the statement? And he says, yeah, of course I know that. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. What Jesus is saying is that they don't have soft hearts. They have stubborn hearts, hearts that are unrepentant, hearts that don't want to look for the truth. So Peter, being the bold one and the one who's uh, obligated to ask the questions, right, at least he felt that that was his responsibility, says this, explain the parable to us. And Jesus says, all right, fine. Are you still lacking in understanding I mean, how would you like to have your teacher say that to you? Um, teacher, I just can't quite understand this concept that you're presenting to me. Well, why are you still lacking in understanding? You should know this by now. Man, that's a little bit harsh from our American perspective. But, you know, it was appropriate. Jesus wasn't sinning. The disciples had to have their hearts opened up had to recalibrate their thinking. And it took some strong words from Jesus to help them. Matthew 15, 17 begins the key section that explains to us what the Spirit is. 
do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? So all the food that you eat just goes to give your body nutrition and then it's eliminated. But the things that proceed out of the mouth, so what you speak with your tongue, those come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. How does this inform us about what the spirit is? Well, for one, it tells us the location. It's in the heart of man. It's within our inner being, our inner person. That is the spirit. That is where the spirit resides, in our inner person. And in America, we have this conception of, well, the heart, you know, you should follow your heart because it's all about feelings and emotions. But the head, well, that's how you make logical decisions. No, there was no such division, no such wrong division. I can't think of a better word than that, division. No separation between these concepts in Jesus's mind. Like if your heart thinks something, if your heart wants to do something, it's because your brain is complicit in the action. Now we know we have a conscience that sometimes convicts us or defends us when we do a certain action or behavior. But what Jesus is talking about here is the origin of evil thinking, the origin of evil ideas. Where does it come from? It comes from the heart. That's why in order to be a believer, you have to have a new heart. You have to have a heart of stone cut out of you by the Holy Spirit, and you have to be given a new heart by the Holy Spirit. The heart is what is engaged in worship. All right? And truth, true truth, is what directs your worship. The heart must be engaged. And truth, God's revealed truth, God's objective truth, the only truth that is actually true. I don't know how else to say that, but I can say this. We live in an age of relative truth where truth changes over time. But what Jesus is talking about is the truth that never changes. It's a timeless truth. It has been revealed by God and it will not change. We are to worship in spirit and in truth. That means the entire part of your being must be engaged in this process of worship. The entire part of your being. You can't just go there and sing the songs or listen to the sermon and think that you've worshipped if your heart is far away from God. Your heart can be anywhere else, and this has been true. There are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of examples of this in churches throughout history where people have gone to church to quote-unquote worship God and they say some things and they sing some things and they listen to some things, but their heart is far from God. I mean, that's what the Pharisees were. They were all about worshiping God all the time. Everything that they did was to please God, but their hearts were far from God. Okay, so that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's getting at this very particular truth that you have to be engaged 
in your internal being. And what you are engaged in is an objective, timeless truth. Your worship must be both spirit and truth. And I think that's a good spot to stop for today. We'll come back and talk about the actual definition of worship next time. Thanks for listening. Once again, I have a friend of mine named Stephen Lohr helping out with this podcast by offering me some mixing and mastering advice as well as EQ advice. He operates a um, home studio. It's an in-home independent studio. It's the S. Lohr Music Group. And he can write, he can record, he can mix, he can master. If you need any audio or visual work performed, please check him out on Facebook or email at slohr, S-L-O-H-R dot musicgroup at gmail.com. I pastor at the Grace Brethren Chapel. You can find us online at www.gbchapel.org. That's www.gbchapel.org. Let me know. If you have any feedback, shoot me an email, um, a comp post on Facebook, or jedbreaksbread at podbean.com. I'd be happy to hear any feedback or comments or anything of that nature that you guys want to pass along. God bless.